Now, I realize the pulpit is not the place for politics, but that doesn't keep me from having personal opinions or even reading books that uh, counter what we're most often told in the legacy media. And it doesn't keep me from thinking highly of some politicians and not so highly of others. I don't even think it should keep me from stating publicly my admiration for former President Ronald Reagan. And while I obviously didn't know him personally or have the ability to assess his character beyond what I saw portrayed in the media and the policies he championed, I really appreciated what Nancy wrote of him before his death. I think they broke the mold when they made Ronnie, she said. He was a man of strong principles and integrity. He had absolutely no ego, and he was very comfortable in his own skin. Therefore, he didn't feel he ever had to prove anything to anyone. I find that an amazing thing to say about a former actor, governor, and president. You know, if anyone has an ego driving them, it's actors and politicians. But many who work closely with him have affirmed that Nancy's evaluation of her husband's character was true. I do, however, hope the mold has not been broken. I realize those in high-profile positions do tend to have ego problems, and I know it's not easy to remember our place when others are looking up to us. We've all seen politicians, priests, and preachers fall when they started thinking more highly of themselves than they should have, and when they started assuming privileges to which they were not entitled. Still, I do hope that there are others in positions of power and influence that have been cut from the same mold as was President Reagan. I know there used to be. John the Baptist was such a man. He is an excellent example of someone who knew how to remember his place. A man who kept a lid on this tendency towards self-aggrandizement. Let's see what we can learn from him this morning. We're in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting with verse 22. And after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing and John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. There arose therefore discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. After these things, after the preliminary call of the first six disciples, 
After attending the wedding in Cana and the first miracle, after going to Jerusalem for the Passover and the first cleansing of the temple, after the nighttime meeting with Nicodemus, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. Now, unless Jesus and the disciples had made a trip back to Galilee between verses 21 and 22, they were already in the land of Judea. They were in Jerusalem. John may have simply been indicating that they had traveled into the countryside, perhaps somewhere along the Jordan River. If that's the case, they most likely went there to get away from the crowds in Jerusalem and to baptize those who were coming to them, responding to the call for repentance. John was also baptizing in the area, in Anon near Salem. Now, we're not sure of the location of Salem or Anon, but Anon means springs. And John was baptizing there because there was much water, actually many waters there. Now, obviously, he wouldn't have gone to a place where there were many waters if he had been sprinkling or pouring water on people's heads rather than immersing them. And makers of stained glass windows seem seem to have a hard time understanding that. 20 years ago or so, when we were designing our windows out here, both companies that we approached about designing our windows submitted sketches for our windows, and they I said we wanted Jesus being baptized, and all of them had Jesus being sprinkled. And that's not quite as bad as a story I heard when I was a kid at Westside. Apparently, the makers of the stained glass windows for the the first Westside told the building committee that they would donate a stained glass background for the baptistry, and with much anticipation, they opened it upon arrival, only to discover John the Baptist pouring water on the head of Jesus. Now, they opted for a painted scene of the Jordan River instead, and I'm glad I did. They did because I was baptized behind or in the Jordan River as portrayed at Westside rather than John being sprinkled. But anyway, both both John and Jesus, or as we'll learn in chapter 4, Jesus' disciples were baptizing in the same area. Now, the writer of the gospel, the Apostle John, adds that this was taking place before John the Baptist had been thrown into prison. He is recording events that the other gospel writers did not record. They all go directly from Jesus' baptism and temptations to the arrest of John and Jesus' subsequent withdrawal into Galilee. Many of the events that John is relating in the first four chapters of his gospel took place during a six to eight month period known as the early Judean ministry. It was during this early Judean ministry that Jesus' disciples were baptizing in the same area as was John the the Baptist. And it was during this time that someone apparently suggested that Jesus' baptism was of more value than John's. Now, the matter of the fact is that they were both identical. They were both baptisms of repentance. They were a way for Jews to acknowledge their need for cleansing 
before the Messianic kingdom began. They were a way to respond to the call for repentance that both John and Jesus were issuing to the people of God. Neither were Christian baptism. Christian baptism didn't begin until after the death and resurrection of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. Christian baptism obviously does have more value than earlier forms of baptism. Christian baptism allows us to actually share in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and assures us of our reception of the Holy Spirit. John's baptism and the baptism performed by Jesus' disciples during his life and ministry was appropriate for the time, but neither had more value than the other because they were the same baptism. Apparently, someone suggested, however, that Jesus' baptism was superior to John's. He may have suggested that Jesus' baptism did a better job of purifying from sin or, or, or something like that. Well, John's disciples took offense at that and went to John. Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. The seeds of religious rivalry were sprouting. John's disciples were becoming jealous because it appeared to them that everyone was now going to Jesus. Of course, all were not going to Jesus because they were still baptizing those who were coming to them. But since so many were going to him, it looked like none were coming to them. Everyone was going to the other guy. They wouldn't even call him by name. He was just the one to whom John borne witness on the other side of the Jordan. John's disciples didn't like what was going on. And they rose to his defense. And in doing so, they only added fuel to a potential fire. You know, it's bad enough to compare ministries and create a competitive spirit in the kingdom. But to rise to someone's defense, giving him the impression that he's not getting what he deserves and that someone else is stealing his glory only makes things worse. But John did not succumb to the temptation to feel sorry for himself. He simply reminded them that a man's place in life is given to him from above. He reminded them who was in charge of what was going on. God had given John his ministry, and God had given Jesus his ministry. They weren't in competition with each other. And they weren't responsible for the results that came from their respective ministries. As Paul would later so eloquently state, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You know, our only responsibility is fulfill the ministry that God has given to us, to faithfully do what God has called us to do. If God chooses to bless someone else with a bigger garden, 
or to allow someone else to reap what we have sown, so be it. He's in charge. He's the one we're working for. And he's the one calling the shots. We must never forget that. If we do, we'll find ourselves constantly frustrated in ministry. We'll always be wondering why someone else seems to be more successful than we do. Now, years ago, I visited the Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, a church that was averaging over 18,000 in attendance every weekend. Now, I was very impressed with the church, but found it humorous that Bob Russell, the minister, said they were often compared to the even larger Saddleback Church out on the West Coast. And that Bob, who had written several books, was occasionally asked how many books he had sold, while being reminded that Rick Warren had sold millions. <laughs> now, comparisons seem to run rampant in the church. But this is true in life in general as well. You know, God has given us all a place in life. And he only expects us to do the best we can with what he has given us. We have a variety of talents given to us, and the number is different. God doesn't expect us to be or to do what someone else is or what they do. He wants us to be what he made us to be and what he's gifted us to be, every one of us. You know, God has given us our place in life. Now, it is true that we can often improve our station in life, but some have unquestionably been given more talents and abilities to do so than others. Again, God does not expect us to do what someone else can do or to be someone we're not. And he certainly doesn't expect us to be something we're not. As John recognized, we've got to remember who is the Christ. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, and so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, John had always made it clear that he was not the Christ. He was not the Messiah. He had a significant role in establishing the Messianic kingdom, but he was not the Messiah. He never claimed to be, and he never forgot it. And that's important. You know, it's not very often that someone is audacious enough to claim he's the Messiah, but it's relatively easy for someone in religious leadership to develop a Messianic complex to start thinking that the salvation of the world depends on him and start acting as if he is the Messiah. There's a fine line between evangelistic zeal and a neurotic obsession with saving the world. John never forgot his role. 
He was the one sent before him. He was the forerunner to the Messiah. He preceded the Messiah. He prepared the way for the Messiah. He compared his role to that of the friend of the bridegroom. He was the one who made the arrangements for the wedding and made sure everything went as planned. Now the bridegroom in this analogy is obviously the Messiah and the bride is the people of God. In the Old Testament, Israel was pictured quite often as God's bride, albeit unfaithful. In the New Testament, the church is seen as the bride of Christ. The best man's job is not to take the bride for himself, but to bring the bride and groom together. That was John's job. That's what he had been sent to do. So why should he be jealous if the people were coming to Christ? That's what he wanted to see happen. The best man rejoices when he hears the bride and groom make vows to each other. When they commit themselves to one another. So John's joy was made full when people committed themselves to Christ. He didn't want people committing themselves to him. He wasn't the Messiah. Now there are many religious leaders today who need to remember that. It's not our job to get people committed to us or to the church in which we preach, but to Christ. He's the Christ. We must never forget that. And as John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. There was no need for a herald after the king had arrived. So why should people come to the forerunner after his task was finished? John understood his role, and he gladly accepted a diminishing role in people's lives. He didn't want people staying with him forever. He wanted them to make the transition from dependence on him to dependence upon Christ. And a good minister remembers that today. It's not our job to make personal disciples, but to make disciples of Christ. You know, I've been privileged to be the preacher here for almost 50 years now. Someday, unless the Lord comes first, that role's going to have to shift to someone else. It'll be a time of transition. There ought to be a good change. And I pray that in 50 years, I've not made disciples of Rick. I've made disciples of Jesus. John knew his place. He knew his place. His joy was made full when he saw people committing themselves to Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's the one who came from heaven. Let's read on. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he bears witness, and no one, no man receives his witness. 
He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Now again, we're not sure who said this. It's not clear whether John the Baptist said it or it's comment from the Apostle John. If John the Baptist didn't actually say it, he certainly understood it. The one who came from heaven is above all. And that one is Christ, period. No matter how much insight someone else might have into spiritual things, he comes from earth. And his understanding is therefore limited. The one who comes from heaven is the final authority. And no one from earth can usurp Christ's position of authority. No one is above him. Jesus is the only one with first-hand information about heavenly things. He's the one who has seen and heard. In fact, he's the one who created it all. We've only been told. He's the witness. And while most men don't receive his witness, those who do find themselves in agreement with God, for he whom God sent speaks the truth, the word of God. And to him the Spirit has been given without measure. That's probably the best understanding of the phrase, he gives the Spirit without measure. You know, a measure of God's Spirit has been given to others, to prophets, to teachers, to believers in general. But the Spirit in his entirety has been given to the Son. In fact, the Father has given all things into the hands of the Son. So he's the one we listen to. He's the one we believe in. He's the one who makes it possible for us to come into a relationship with the Father. In fact, he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. And as we've noted before, belief means to trust in, to rely upon, and to act upon. In short, to obey. John makes that clear when he adds, He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The only way to see life is to obey the Son. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who's the Christ. He's the one from heaven. He's the one we trust and obey. He's the one we follow. We all 
need to remember that. Religious leaders need to remember that as well. John did. I trust we will never forget our place in the kingdom. We'll be what God has called us and equipped us to be. And everything we do will point to Jesus. That's our job. That's my job and that's your job. We trust him. We obey him. He saves us. And he uses us. I appreciate John very much. And I appreciate the opportunity we've been given to point men and women to Jesus. Not to ourselves, but to him. That's why we're here. And we trust him. And we obey him.